0: Good morning, so glad, uh, I'm so glad to be with you all. I had, do not believe I have preached here in about two or three years, and so it's good to be back, and I'm happy to be here. And what's so strange about today is I didn't know if I would be here or not about seven this morning, because we had a church picnic yesterday, and about 20 to 30 of us all got food poisoning. So it's a miracle I'm here. Well, maybe not a miracle. Uh, uh, Maybe I'm stubborn. I don't know. Uh, But my wife and son are not here because they are at home uh, ill and texting me about it. Uh, Things are still bad. Uh, But good for us, we get to dive into good news this morning out of Acts 11. Uh, If you wouldn't mind turning to Acts 11, uh, I'm going to read the whole chapter It's 30 verses. It won't take long because it's a story. And Acts 11 picks up after this great event where Peter experiences a change in his own ministry uh, as he sees the Holy Spirit uh, fall on the Gentiles, and he witnesses the conversion of a Gentile family, and he is telling this report, and we see what happens in Acts 11. So, hear the word of God from Acts 11. Now, the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. So, when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him, saying, You went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. But Peter began and explained it to them in order. I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision, something like a great sheet descending, being let down from heaven by its four corners, and it came down to me. Looking at it closely, I observed animals and beasts of prey and reptiles and birds of the air, and I heard a voice saying to me, "'Rise, Peter, kill and eat.' How he had seen the angel stand in the house and say, Send to Joppa and bring Simon, who is called Peter. He will declare to you a message by which you will be saved and all your household. And as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them just as on us at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, Who was I that I could stand in God's way? When they heard these things, they fell silent, and they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who, on coming to Antioch, spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came, he saw the grace of God. He was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he had found them, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people, and in Antioch the disciples were first called Christians. Now in these days prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them named Agbas stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined everyone according to their ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea, and they did so, sending it to the elders by the hands of Barnabas and Saul. Please join me in prayer. Lord, we thank you so much for your word and the truth that it is, and that you indeed are the word by which we can have life, and so we pray that we would feast on your word this morning, that your spirit would be present and active, and that we would see You, Jesus, high and lifted up. Amen. So we are a culture obsessed with growth. We might ask ourselves, how can I grow as a person? If you are in business, how can I grow my business? If you're in the church field like me, you might ask, how can we grow a church? Uh, One of my obsessions that comes with growth is this, how can I actually have grass grow in my front and back lawn? And every year I make a plan, I, I buy the good fescue, I take time to uh, overseed the proper areas, I buy new dirt, um, I buy good nutrients to help the seeds, I follow uh, what they say to do to plant it, and there, each year there's always a problem. Rain. Lots of it. Every April or May we seem to get torrential downpours, and then it's like, the entire month, and then my seeds don't stay in place, and the lawn washes out, and the seeds get scattered, and my lawn never seems to grow how I think it should, but this year, I'm obsessing a little more, crossing my fingers, and we shall see. One of the things about the book of Acts as a whole is that Luke gives a story about the growth of the church. And like my lawn sometimes, the church grows in unexpected ways and in places that you never think that it should. And it grows. The church grows during controversy. It grows during persecution. It grows despite shipwrecks. It grows despite language and ethnic barriers. And the text that we heard this morning shows us that God grows the church in unexpected and unhindered ways. He works through animosity that people have toward one another. He works through the scattering of Christians due to persecution. He works through a famine, and what becomes clear in Acts 11 is that the good news of Christianity, that Christ came to save sinners, cannot be stopped. It's remarkable. It is unhindered. And In the text this morning, Acts 11, we are going to survey two themes, unhindered growth and unhindered love. Unhindered growth and unhindered love. And we'll see growth as the church overcomes or is confronted with racial animosity and how God uses persecution to spread the gospel. And then the second point, we will see unhindered love as the church in Antioch ministers both in word and in deed in their city and outside their city. So two points, unhindered growth and unhindered love. So first point, unhindered growth. Imagine this scene. Peter had just witnessed a miracle of change. Cornelius and his family became Christians, and it shocked him because they were Gentiles, and he was someone who, before he witnessed witnessed this experience, hated Gentiles. Not only that, Cornelius was a centurion in the Roman army, and they came to Christ. But for Peter, there's a miracle of change in his own heart. He enters the home of a Gentile. He eats a meal with folks who he has believed his entire life to be unclean to be outsiders according to his traditions and laws and customs. Peter wrestles with that anxiety, taking in the unfamiliar sights, smells, eating food that he never thought he would eat in his entire life. And what he realizes in this experience as he sees God work is that God shows no partiality, that salvation is for anyone regardless of who you are what your background is, what your ethnicity might be, what kind of food you eat. And so Peter goes back to report what happened, and he is ecstatic at what he had witnessed and experienced. He marvels at the beauty of God's redemption. Even saying this, he says, who am I to stand in God's way? You see, his own prejudice was crushed by grace. The beauty of the gospel overcame this blind spot in his life. And yet when Peter tells the story, he meets opposition. And it doesn't come from everyone within the church, but it comes from a vocal minority before he even gets to tell the story. Imagine him coming into a room, and then people say, Hey, Peter, you were with someone who was unclean. He gets criticism for who he spent his time with, who he ministered to, and these, this criticism comes from Christians who are part of what was called the circumcision party. They're Christians who probably have a similar background to the Pharisees, who were the strictest religious party in Israel. They didn't like Samaritans. They didn't care for people who were not Jewish. And what is so striking to see in this is that they knew the Hebrew scriptures inside and out, and they should have known and they knew that God's law had provisions to welcome the strangers and outsiders and incorporate them into the people of God, that they knew these stories. Rahab in the Old Testament, Ruth the Moabite, Bathsheba, Uriah's wife. And these are the women in Jesus' genealogy, not to mention Christ's own ministry, where he spent time with people who were not Jewish, where he told stories that put the Samaritans as the heroes, where he spent time with people who were not like him, who were notorious, who were outcasts and outsiders, and called sinners to be his disciples. But the circumcision party didn't get this. They wanted to cling to their traditions. They wanted the Gentiles to follow the rules their way. They didn't appreciate Peter eating dinner with outsiders. They wanted Gentiles to become like them, in order to be worthy to receive Christ. And yet Peter stands firm, he tells the story of God's work, and the critics begin to marvel at the power of the grace of God. They begin to ascribe glory to God, and here's the beauty of this moment, is that the power of Christ, the grace of Christ, the love of Christ, is greater than our own prejudices that we have toward others. It is greater than our own judgments that we form about people who make us uncomfortable. It is greater than the barriers that we put out, up in order to keep others out. When I read this story, I, imagined, uh, I imagine it being like the end of Rocky IV, after he beats Drago and he gives this speech that ends the Cold War. No, it doesn't. But he says, if I can change, you can change. Everybody can change, Right? And Peter is highlighting this amazing change that he experienced that came through the power of Christ. The power of the gospel works to shatter the barriers that we ourselves put up. And sometimes, though, sometimes we can be the critics. We can be the critics who don't want to be around the self-righteous types of Christians. We might say, well... We don't spend time with those Christians because they're so judging. And then in that moment, we become the judge. And many of us, uh, myself included, might come from a type of Bible Belt Christianity that is characterized as judgmental. And we say, well, we're not like that. But we can be. And we have to keep that in, in mind. And we have to understand that even people who are transfixed by the grace of God can sometimes be critical of others, and we have to work and pray and cling to the gospel message of grace. We can also find ourselves on the receiving end of criticism like Peter. One of the things that's going to happen in the life of your congregation uh, is that you are going to have that permanent space, that is, and that's so amazing But the thing that will happen is that people begin to, and I know this from my own experience, people will begin to walk in on Sunday mornings when they see the sign or during the day that make you very uncomfortable. It's coming, I promise. Uh, And and it won't be OU fans. It will be like people that really make you uncomfortable. (laughs) And what, what we have to realize is the gospel is pushing us. Because Christ came to reconcile sinners to himself, the gospel is pushing us toward solidarity and love toward our fellow neighbor. And that there is a biblical imperative that we see in Acts 11 to welcome outsiders like Jesus did. Even to take criticism when that happens, to believe that no one is outside the scope of God's grace and that there will be pushback when we see Christ work. There will always be pushback from ourselves and maybe from others. We must be wise, but we also need to see what Peter did. When Peter is confronted by these these people who did not like him spending time with outsiders, he didn't defend himself going point to point in a theological boxing match. Instead, he just told a story about God's redeeming work. He told a story about the love grace and redemption that comes through Christ. He told a story of Christ rescuing sinners. And we need those types of stories in our own lives and in our community here, because they begin to shape us as we recognize the way that God is working in our community and in our world. And they're stories that help us to become unified together and to endure. And Luke moves us from this internal dispute to persecution. He writes later in the chapter, those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews, but Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. So the church experiences persecution. Persecution led to mission and growth. God used great evil to bring great good. God often uses persecution as a way to rescue Christians from our own in- inward perspective, but as an opportunity to be a witness to others. And this witness is profound and powerful and begins to draw others into the church, and outsiders begin to receive the gospel, and the church grows and expands. And Luke is showing us that God's purposes of redemption are to bring the nations to Christ. The church in Antioch is under threat, but they still preach the good news to the Hellenists, which means Greeks. The nations are coming to the Savior because God used persecution. What we see in Acts 11 is extremely applicable to us. God is sovereign. His grace is powerful. And we might have disputes in our own communities, but God can still work through those and eliminate the barriers that we set up. But let's be honest. When it comes to something like persecution, that seems scarier to us, does it not? It's a bigger deal. Uh, It's a bigger deal than just a dispute, because with persecution, especially in this time, there's threats of imprisonment, death, exile, physical punishment. But the story of the church is a story of witnesses to persecution. Polycarp, who was a disciple of the Apostle John, was executed before the crowds in his late 80s. We have stories from church history of uh, Perpetua and Felicity, who were these two young women. They were in their 20s, and they were put to death because they would not recant Christ. T.S. Eliot wrote a play about Thomas Beckett called uh, Murder in the Cathedral, and it was about this Archbishop of Canterbury who stood up to the king, and the knights come in to uh, the Cathedral of Canterbury, and he knows he is going to die, and he says, the doors of the church are open for all and they rushed in and killed him. And we have scores and scores of stories of Christians who have suffered for their faith. We might even think of the past hundred years, Christians being put to death in places like China, Russia, North Korea, throughout the Middle East, Nazi Germany. And this persecution continues today. There are parts of the world where it's difficult, if not illegal, to be a Christian. We might think of Iraq which had a large Christian population some 15 years ago, but now the church is almost in exile. And yet in the Middle East, Christians are converting to Christ in droves because Christians are proclaiming Christ despite persecution. In places like China, the church is exploding. Uh, This year I've gotten to go to Cuba twice on uh, mission trips, and it is so amazing to see these churches popping up all over the country and to meet people who are Christians. And and what's so funny, I'm not funny. What's so striking is So the first time that I went I took my legal amount of bibles, right? You can take 10 in. And so you think you're doing some sort of big Christian work, right? And the customs agent stopped me, and they said, you have too many Bibles. And then at that moment, I'm like, am I getting my persecution moment? Which It really wasn't. Five minutes later, everything was fine. I offered them the Bibles that they said I had too many of. And they said, oh, just get out of here. But some people go through real persecutions. In the United States, we can sometimes get caught up in cultural debates and think that that is persecution. And we might be afraid when it comes to the future. But here is the reality, is that the scriptures tell us that God does not give a spirit of fear, but of love. And that in the face of persecution, he is still there. And the church is still working. And God is in control. And we see in Acts 11, the church reach out with an unhindered love. Second point. Barnabas hears of this growth. He gives a report. He goes to look for his friend Saul. He finds him. He takes him to Antioch. And they spend a year Doing ministry, the text says for a whole year they met with the church and taught many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. It speaks of prophets coming down and the, the foretelling of a famine and then the church figuring out a strategy with how to deal with it. So here's what happens. Barnabas sees people come to Christ. He's excited about the change that he's seeing, and he is driven by love so much that he devotes an entire year to serve the people in Antioch. And this love works out in two ways. First, it works itself out in the outreach of word. Saul and Barnabas go together and teach. They proclaim the message that Christ is the Messiah. They proclaim the message that God is bringing redemption to the world through Christ. They proclaim Jesus. And they are likely going to synagogues in Antioch because the early church rose from the synagogues in very large cities. And so Saul and Barnabas weren't preaching like we might think of it which is like a monologue. You guys don't really get to say anything back, especially because we're in a Presbyterian church and no one says amen. But they were, they were taking debate. So imagine what that would be like. It was point-counterpoint from the Scriptures. And Saul and Barnabas are seeking to prove from the Scriptures that Jesus is that long-expected Messiah. And because of this emphasis on Christ, the centrality of Christ, the beginning of Acts says that the church was called followers of the way. And here's the turn. They are now called Christians. Why are they called Christians? It's because they are talking about Christ all the time. They are claiming the scriptures point to Jesus. They are claiming that he fulfilled the law and the prophets. And they are claiming that he is the one of whom the prophets spoke and that he was the great redeemer of God's people. And this happened because Barnabas was moved when he saw the work of God. He saw the growth of the church, and he saw the need for the church to remain faithful, and so Barnabas gave up a year of his life and shared ministry with Saul. And it wasn't because he was looking for a platform we think about Barnabas, he didn't even write any of the New Testament. He wasn't an apostle. He was someone who was motivated by love and grace and gave up and served the church to strengthen it through his ministry of teaching. And he does it through proclaiming Christ, Christ as the central component to our great faith. Christian, in fact, means little Christ. And so when we think about that, We know what it's like to be labeled based on what's central to us, right? We're in a state where we see cowboys and thunder merchandise and Sooner merchandise all the time. And we we put those on to tell people where our loyalty is, right? In fact, I was reading this story about a lady named Mary Farr. In 1975, she was involved in a plane accident and lost her left eye. I cannot imagine what that would be like. But apparently Mary is one of those people who takes lemons and makes lemonade because what she did with the loss of her eye was she began to tell every person one of the most central things to her life, that she loves the University of Alabama. She had a glass eye made that says Bama. It's the way she was saying it. And so here's the thing, is if you see her, if you talk with her, the first thing you see is like, oh, Alabama is very centrally important to her because she put it in her eye. That's crazy. And in Antioch, people were called Christians because Christ was central to who they were. And we proclaim that each and every Sunday as we worship together, right? And as we take the Lord's Supper, we're saying that Christ is central to who I am. When we witness a baptism, we see that Christ is central to that family, to that child, to that new believer. And we proclaim that centrality in worship. And these actions tell people what is important to us. But there are other actions that show people what is important to us. We might think of attending a small group, Sunday school, helping with an outreach, volunteering with RUF. Bless you. I've always wanted to do that. But our faith shows up in how we spend our time, who we love, how we proclaim Christ, not just in word, which is absolutely important, but also in deed. You see, people took notice, and they joined the church, and they embraced Christ because of the proclamation of Christ, but also the love and care that Christians had for one another. Luke tells of the impending famine facing Judea. And in these times, when a famine came, it meant certain death, especially for the very poor because it was an agrarian-based society, and it could take several years to recover from a famine, and the Roman Empire offered no assistance to the needy, so you were left on your own. But it was the Christians who stepped up. The Christians who were hundreds of miles away stepped up, and in Antioch, of all places, a Gentile city, performed a famine relief effort to help people that they never knew or met. They ministered Indeed, as well. They reached out, they cared. One of the challenges for us as we go through our day to day lives as Christians is to ask that question where can I show the love of Christ in my own deeds? Where can we invest as a church? Where can we invest as individuals? Where can we make a difference in our neighborhood? In our campus, when we encounter people with addiction, when we encounter people who make us uncomfortable, when we encounter people who have physical needs as well as great spiritual needs. And the Bible calls us to love the Lord with our heart, soul, mind, and strength and to love our neighbor just as we would want to be loved. So why? Why would we do these things? We do them for the same reason that Peter shared a meal with someone he was supposed to hate. We do it for the same reason that Barnabas went to Antioch, for the same reason the Christians in Antioch sent relief to Christians in Judea. It's the love of Christ, friends. It's the gospel working in our lives as God's Spirit empowers us to be more like Christ. Our ministry together as believers is not only proclaiming the love of Christ, but demonstrating that great love as we care for each other and as we care for others. And Acts 11 shows us how God is at work in the lives of people to change hate into love, to work through persecution so that people hear and see the love that others have for Christ and are transfixed by that grace and drawn in. We see how Christ works in the lives of leaders who are compelled to serve and how he works through the ordinary folks who see needs and work together to fulfill them. And friends, that's for us today. We can see and show Jesus to others as we proclaim the goodness of the gospel and as we demonstrate it through caring, through sharing with one another and being a blessing to others. May the grace of Christ compel us to serve him as we reach out because of his great love. Amen.